Dotnet Rocks episode 875 with guest John Papa. Recorded live Thursday, May 23rd, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. John Papa's here. We'll talk to him in just a minute. How are you, sir, Mr. Campbell, out there in Romania? Yeah, I'm at the end of my Romanian trip now. I think this is going to be the last show we do here before we move on to DevTeach in Toronto. Yep, that's right. We're going to be uh, up there very soon and then headed to TechEd. Going to be fun there. Headed to NDC, Norwegian Developers Conference. Yes, nice little string of conferences, isn't it? Going to be fun. And, of course, we'll be back in Romania probably uh, around Dev reach time in october yes right well i had so much fun up here i figured we have to do some more so i'm working on it yeah that sounds good hey it's time for better know framework awesome all right buddy what you got well apparently today microsoft officials said that they will make a new connect sensor for windows connect for windows sensor in 2014 this according to mary joe foley which you can read the article at tinyurl.com slash KFW2014, Connect for Windows 2014. The new Connect for Windows sensor, according to Mary Jo, will include many of the technologies that Microsoft showed off in the Connect for Xbox One product earlier this week. Wow. Microsoft is promising the Connect for Windows sensor will also include higher fidelity, an expanded field of view, skeletal tracking, and new active infrared all features of the Connect for Xbox One. There also will be a new Connect for Windows software development kit coming. They said, uh, Microsoft officials said they'll be discussing the new SDK and the Connect for Windows sensor at Build 2013 in June, but they aren't saying when the SDK will be available. Yeah, so there you go. New sensor coming. So I got to get busy. Well, no kidding, because, you know, I've been looking over Xbox One and this new sensor. I mean, it's literally version two of the sensor. Yeah. Like, they're turning stuff up, right? Like, it's a pretty important. It'd be a big jump forward. They're talking about 1080p resolution yeah. on their scanning and on the video. That's that's cool. Like, that's a dramatic jump forward. And the skeletal tracking will track thumb and fingertip. So, while it won't do all fingers, wow. but it will have a thumb and fingertips. So, probably your, you know, your your longest fingertip and your thumb, it will track those. That's what I saw, anyway, in the videos. That's cool. It looks amazing. The, the, check out the videos. Just search for Xbox One video. I think it's at Gizmodo. Maybe we can find a link and put it there. Uh, definitely for worth sure. looking at. Amazing, amazing stuff coming out of Microsoft. So, Richard, who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 873, and that's the one we did with Derek Whitaker, where he talked about migrating from XAML to HTML. Yeah. And this comment is from a fellow whose name is General Soft. So we'll decide that's a pseudonym. Okay. But he says, and I quote, 
Rumors of Silverlight's demise are exaggerated, in my view. Okay. First, a quick note. Visual Studio 2012 and Blender 2012 support project templates for Silverlight for Windows 8 and Windows Phone, even 7.1. In some cases, HTML5, JavaScript, CSS was a late inclusion. It only came in Update 2. Mm. And furthermore, I attended a Silverlight training in August of 2006 when it was then called WPFE, and I knew then it was a winner. Yeah. Unfortunately, the market hasn't borne that view. I believe that's because of slow adoption by developers. Perhaps there wasn't enough ROI to invest in a paradigm shift during the recession. And paradigm shift it is, from imperative to declarative model. Another reason may be, and purely speculation on my part, Sanofsky's clout. We are going through a, quote, mobile-first era. For most software shops, they seem to have a capacity for dealing with three platforms and no more. And this remains the biggest challenge, for HTML5 is perceived to be the universal cross-platform language that's immediately available. Beyond declarative model, there are many other advantages to the WPF slash Silverlight slash XAML, but it is safe to assume that Microsoft's competitors will not support XAML. For Silverlight to remain viable in the mobile form factor, it will have to be processor embedded and or Microsoft mobile sales combined with development cost savings presently apparently at par for HTML5 versus Silverlight, large enough to justify ROI in its own right. General Soft. Oh boy. Yeah, can I can I go first? Go ahead. Cuz I have something to say. Well, it, it the fight is over, man. You're still fighting a dead battle. It, they have a new version of Silverlight for mobile. It's called Metro. It's called WinRT. And I don't disagree with you there. Like you know, and he even said it himself here. We said the combination of WPF Silverlight XAML. In the end, it's all just XAML. Yeah. And XAML's been unified into a one core base, and that's good. XAML is permanent. It's part of the operating system. It's never going away. Right. All of that is fine. Your Silverlight skills are clearly transferable. Mm -hmm. The real issue that distinguishes Silverlight from, say, WPF is the plugin model. And that's what's really died, mm. is that plugins are dead. It doesn't matter if you're Silverlight or your Flash or your any other kind of plugin. Plugins are a vector for viruses, yep. and the market is spoken. We don't want that backdoor open anymore. That's why we're doing app stores, and that's why we eliminated plugins as a whole, so that we just don't have that vector anymore. That's why Windows 8 is what it is. Blacklisting is out. Whitelisting is in. Yep. Yeah. So, so I, and you it, know, I feel for you, but Silverlight is a is a client side version of .NET, but we have that for going forward and it is called WinRT and it is embedded. I mean, XAML is is native code in Windows 8, you know? So it, it is yep. all of those things that you say it needed in order to survive. And and that's uh that's what they did. Yeah, and I and I and I totally agree that XAML's not gonna run on any other platform. I don't see anybody running else to support it. Yep. But that's fine. We can do good things with what we've got. We certainly can and we are doing good things with it. So general Thank you very much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps for iPhone, Android, and Windows Phone. They all go back to the same Discuss comment engine. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by industry experts releasing 12 to 15 new courses every month and offering a free 10-day trial or 200 minutes. 
with a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including courses by John Papa on single-page applications and others. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce back to the show John Papa. John is a former senior technical evangelist for Microsoft. He was on the Silverlight and Windows 8 client teams there. John is a Microsoft regional director and author of 100-plus articles and 10 books specializing in professional application development with technologies including Windows, HTML5, JavaScript, CSS, Silverlight, WPF, C-Sharp, .NET, and SQL Server. He can often be found speaking around the world at keynotes and sessions for conferences such as Build, Mix, PDC, TechEd, VS Live, and Angle Brackets. John was the host of the popular show Silverlight TV on Channel 9 and hosted many events, including the Mixer and Open Source Fest at major conferences. He currently enjoys authoring courses for Pluralsight, as I said before. You can always find John at johnpapa.net, that's J-O-H-N-P-A-P-A.net, or on Twitter at John underscore Papa. Welcome back, John. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here. So, John, being the Silverlight expert that you are, any comments on our comment from today? Silverlight, what's that? <laughs> I'm not familiar with this term. <laughs> what is that Mickey Mouse technology? Oh. <laughs> now, you, you hit the nail on the head. The, the big thing right there, and I, I think Carl laid it out, was Silverlight, the battle has been waged and it's been won and it's not been won by Silverlight. What really happened was, just as you said, Silverlight became something else in, in my mind. It became what's on the Windows 8 devices. Yep. It basically became the foundation for all these RT devices that we're seeing now. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, and it, and and the skill sets continue. Like uh, it's the what you learn from Silverlight, you carry over to this, and I think other than the Mac story, all good things happen from here. Right, and all those Mac users are abandoning their Mac desktops for uh, you know for iPads anyway. So, and you know, next last time I checked, uh, XAML wasn't going to run on an iPad anytime soon. No, and to be honest with you, there, there were things I love about XAML, and I still love about XAML, but there's also things that were always frustrating. For example, in XAML, the declarative layout was awesome, and I love the drag-and-drop ability inside of Expression Blend. But some of the things that we struggled a lot with were, were getting that separation between that UI and our uh, code layer, whether you did like MVVM with a view model or, or code behind or whatever. Hmm. And that was often difficult sometimes with the UI interactions and then the, the presentation logic. And actually moving over to the web world with things like single-page applications or SPA and HTML5 and JavaScript, it's actually much cleaner to be able to separate those things out. And one of the big things that's much easier, in my opinion, is CSS is really built for all that presentation and all the layout. Whereas in XAML, it was much more complicated, in my opinion, to deal with some of the layout with animations and visual states and transitions. Things like that were harder in XAML, whereas basic static layout was easier. So on one hand, XAML was nice with the layout with handling resources for coloring and styling, but it wasn't ideal for things like behaviors where we wanted to put in, sorry, not behaviors, but visual states, where we wanted to put in a lot of animations and transitions. So in a way, I feel like it's a lot easier to do those things over in the spa world with HTML5, uh, but there's definitely things that I wish we could carry over still from that XAML world and and uh, kind of getting ahead of myself, but I, I'm hoping that the tooling vendors out there will help us get those things. Well, yeah, and I'm with you. I think the, uh, the we can learn a lot. Microsoft can learn a lot from HTML and CSS, 
but also the other way around. I would like, I, like you said, I would love to see some of those Xamily things just happen in HTML5. Yeah, Microsoft does tooling better than anybody, in my opinion. They mm-hmm. really, really do. And you know, the plugin model for Visual Studio is great, and the third-party vendors are awesome. I just see, you know, in a year or two from now, I, I can really see some amazing things coming down the pipeline. And I'd be shocked if we didn't have a much better tooling story pretty soon. Yeah, it would certainly be against our nature, you know, the environment that we're working in, to not have the tools just keep getting better and better and better. But I got to tell you, man, I'm still wrestling with whether SPA is a good idea. Can we, can, we get, can we back up? Can we do some basic definitions? What are we talking about here? That's a good point. And I think I like to break it into two categories, actually, because SPA is the, you know, the term du jour these days because people seem to resonate with it. Kind of like Silverlight was the term for a while there. But it's really not just SPA that we're talking about. We're really talking about how do you make a web application that has, or even go even more broad, make an application that has a really wide reach and is much more responsive and doesn't do a lot of round trips. The big three R's there. Mm -hmm. If you can do that, that's what everybody wants. All the users, they don't care what you write the code in. You know, these app users and end users, they want a responsive app. Businesses want responsive apps that are easy to deploy, where they don't have to go through stores and, you know, approval processes and all this other kind of stuff. They want something that can work on any device, Android, iPad, whatever. So getting back to that, what is the only vehicle for delivery we have right now that's robust enough to do that? And that's HTML. Not HTML5, but HTML. So that gets you into things like PHP or ASP.NET and doing stuff like that where you can render HTML and then pushing some more presentation logic to the client so we don't have to do all round trips every time we touch anything on the screen. So SPA is basically a subset, in my opinion, of this new world, this mobile or this wider reach world. But it doesn't necessarily have to be SPA either. It could just be, let's say, server-driven pages, which are rendering the HTML out to the browser. So what does SPA make different about that? In my opinion, what makes it a SPA versus just a regular web app is you're pushing a lot of the presentation logic, not business logic, but presentation logic up to the client inside the browser. Let the browser be as powerful as all these big companies like Google and Microsoft and Firefox say they're going to be. And it's the only thing we know we can count on, right? It's on every machine already. I just think we're sort of violating some fundamental tenets of HTML here that we were supposed to move from page to page to page. The idea that we, it's like you're trying to make a smart client in a browser. Is that smart? Exactly. It, it feels against our nature, doesn't it? We're doing things the browser was originally not intended to do. Are we bad? Well, I, I'm more concerned about the consequences because I've got to tell you, I've had some long running IE pages over the years. Uh, Op- Outlook Web Access being one of them that start to <laughs> eat some non-trivial chunks of memory the longer they run. Yeah, it really can be. I mean, like any app, you have to manage your memory and your memory leaks. And there's a lot of things you have to do. And, and the way I always liken it is it's not the HTML, the CSS most of the time because the browsers are pretty optimized for those. It's the JavaScript. Right. And the JavaScript's not bad. It's that in the C-sharp.net world, which is, you know, the language I've been doing for 10 years or, or more, that world there, it's like driving over a, a bridge with guardrails on it. .net's going to make it really hard for you to drive through that guardrail and over into the bay. But with JavaScript, you're on the same bridge. It's just that the guardrails aren't really there. They're made of paper. So you could drive off that bridge <laughs> into the bay at any time. Yeah, right. If you... If you want to go off the rails, feel free. It's easy. Yeah. 
And there's the cool thing is there's things that are really cool that you can do with JavaScript that you can't do with a statically typed language like .NET uh, with C Sharp because JavaScript allows you to change the way things work. Uh, but that also means mm-hmm. with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. You, know, you have to make sure you manage that too. And behave, and behave carefully. And am I wrong to call OWA a, a spa, a spa from a billion years ago too? Outlook Web Access? Yeah, I, I think you're right, yeah. actually. I hadn't thought about that, but I think if I recall, there were two versions. There was like the server-heavy version, and then there was the client-heavy version that they had. And then the client-heavy version basically tr- basically was a massive spa on the client, I believe. Yep. I um, I would also like to uh, brag about the .NET Rocks admin website. While it's not pretty, it is a spa, and we've been using it since, what, 2000? 2002, rather? Something sure. like that. And you just live in one page all the time. Yeah. You know, and people ask, you know, well, when and why would you want to do this? And the first thing I try to caution people on is just like with any new technology that we have, and, and SPA is not new, but with any technology that you're starting to get into, that's how I classify new. It's new to you. When you do this, you, ha- you don't just take everything you've been doing for the last 10 years and throw it away and do this new thing. You have to find the right place to use the right tool in the right situation. And, you know, a lot of things go into that. Your, your team has to be in the mindset of, of doing this. Your company or your stakeholders have to be in the mindset of needing some of the things that SPA is good at. For example, if you're building an application that has to connect to weights and scales and, you know, measure fingerprints and biometric scanners, you're probably not going to be building a SPA. You know, mm. WPF's good at that stuff. Windows 8's good at that stuff. Mm-hmm. iOS. You know, you have to find the right place to use this kind of thing. Do you think that, uh, you know, we were talking about um, XAML learning from HTML. Do you think the design of a SPA is, uh, I, mean, I mean, sort of goes back to the single form, you know, but not really a single form. Like, we, even when we had Windows Forms, you'd have different screens and things like that. But a, a single-page application sort of tries to, you know, hide and unhide segments that are uh, usable, you know, in, in use while they're in use, and then hide them when they're not in use, that kind of thing. But we never really did a lot of that. I mean, I never really developed a lot of that, even in, with Windows Forms or even WPF. Yeah, I kind of think about it, and, and I'm kind of making this up as I go here. The relation I'm trying to get is back when we did Windows Forms, we basically had this MDI interface where we had this shell. Right. And then Microsoft basically took all the plumbing out of our hands to say, you want to have 10 screens or 100 screens? Just create those forms, and then I'll figure out how to load them and hide them and where they go when they're not visible and all right. that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, with the spa world, we really have the same kind of thing inside the browser, but we have to manage a little bit more about the plumbing of how those things get moved in and out. Mm. And again, I think that's something that some of the frameworks like Angular and Durandal do really well at. But those are things that the browsers are getting better at supporting too, especially like HTML5 push state. Things like that are becoming more baked inside the more modern browsers. Uh, but that, that's a good point. I mean, Windows, a lot of the really robust, uh, mature environments handle a lot of those plumbing for us. And in the spa world, some of these things are things that we haven't had to think about for a long time. There are a million you know, kind of uh, frameworks for JavaScript, and we've only talked about a few of them. Um, do you do you know about some of the other ones that we haven't talked about, like Sammy, Sammy JS? You know about that? Yeah, Sammy's a, a big one that I've been using. I have a love hate relationship with that one. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one that I use inside a lot of my apps. It basically helps you mimic that plumbing, so you can move multiple views in and out of your spa. 
uh, by basically intercepting the URL navigation in the address bar of the browser. Uh, and I say oh, wow. love-hate because it, it does a great job at what it does, but there's a few little quirky things about it sometimes that just make it awkward to deal with. And um, I think that there's another library called History.js, which is similar to Sammy. Yep. And that one, to me, is, is almost overly complicated just for the sake of being complicated. Uh, but both of them do a good job. <laughs> In my opinion, there's, there's a great opportunity for somebody to come along and make just the navigation framework for JavaScript libraries. And it seems like there's a ton of MVC uh, JavaScript things out there, and I just wonder how useful they are with, when you have uh, ASP.NET and MVC. But like, what about Spine? For example, so yeah, you've got like Backbone and Spine can go together uh, mm-hmm. to basically give you that MVC type atmosphere on the client. You've got a lot of MV star frameworks. You've got the Durandal and Knockout combination. Right, Durandal gives you the lifecycle, Knockout gives you the data binding. You've got Angular that gives you that MVC or MVVM depending on how you look at it. Um, you got CanJS. You got Batman. Uh, there's a whole bunch. Oh, Ember is another big one. What about Eyeballs? So, What's Eyeballs? I haven't heard of Eyeballs. Oh, you Are you making that one up? No, no, that's. Definitely uh, send GitHub. <laughs> GitHub.com slash paulca slash eyeballs.js. I'm going to go look that one up now. It's a lightweight MVC framework. Can't you just take every noun and JS and there's something? Yeah. Well, have you guys seen my latest JavaScript framework I put on GitHub? Oh, come on. Now what? No. It's called te- telekinesis.js. Now, is this a joke? Or are you serious? <laughs> I actually, on April Fool's Day, I created this library. It's got zero code in it. <laughs> and my daughter, my daughter made a little one minute video with me talking about it. And basically, you know, she gets up on stage and she goes, Ooh, <sighs> it's just doing it by itself. That's awesome. <laughs> and some people actually took it serious. <laughs> the funny thing is, I mean, the world of naming and, uh, you know, and describing is a little bit surreal. So you never know if something's real or not. You know, there could be a framework called telekinesis. You know, it might, of course, not do telekinesis, but, you know, as a metaphor. There, there's a framework for everything, in the, and it's almost like it's better if the framework is not named after what it does. Uh, you know, yeah. like Angular and, and Knockout and, and Ember. They, they have, you know, you wouldn't know what they are if you just heard those names. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nobody but, calls it also see, feels to me like for the average developer trying to get into this, this is incredibly intimidating. Like it seems like there's a, and it's not because it's not one tool. You've got to have a tool stack. You said it yourself. You know, Angular Knockout. Those those combinations have got to be tricky to figure out for the average mortal. It, it is. It's really tricky, and the problem is it's a moving target. It's almost like, remember the old days on Google when you were signing up for uh, Gmail and they always had that little graphic up there that says how many megabytes are now available in your mailbox and it's constantly changing? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like that. It's, I, we need some kind of a counter on the web that shows us how many libraries exist out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the national debt. It just keeps growing. Well, well and I love vanilla.js. That's great. That, yeah, that's vanilla the best. JS. Yeah. yeah, and that's and for people who don't know, I mean, vanilla JS is basically means you know you don't have to use a library. No you library. Can do everything you need in JavaScript. Right. But apparently, it's very popular. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the funny thing is, and I ask people a lot. All the major websites use it. I, I got this. I get this great comment the other day in an email that uh, from a frustrated person who watched on my course on Pluralsight. And then I'm going to summarize what he said was basically he was frustrated at how many libraries that he had to use just to get going with all this. Mm. He wanted to have a full-fledged spa with just vanilla JavaScript. 
and he wanted to keep it simple. And in my response, I was trying to frame that up. I said, well, if you want full features, for example, if you want to have rich data access and you want to do caching on the client and sharing of data and object graphs, if you want to do all that kind of stuff yourself, you could write that JavaScript absolutely in VanillaJS. Just write the JavaScript. Don't pull in a library. But you might be writing 5,000 lines of code to do that. Right. Right. Or you could pull in a library, something like Breeze.js that does it for you. Right. And then you're writing two lines of code. Well, it's, and, and I mean, and just to be clear, it's 5,000 lines of brittle code. You're yes. now responsible for doing all the cross browser testing. It's kind of, it reminds me of the assembler days, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's kind yeah, of I mean, really. weird to, to put JavaScript and assembler in the, the same sort of boat, but yeah. You know, the questions people ask sometimes I think are the wrong questions because we're, we're so, and it's not that people aren't smart, it's because we're predisposed to thinking like this. The questions always come up are, before I choose a tool, who's going to support it? Is it going to live for 10 years? Those are usually the first two questions that come out of people's mouths. Right. Whether it's .NET or WPF or Java or JavaScript. And the problem in this open source world is that nothing's going to live for 10 years, really. Right. And you think about it, and and... If you write a mobile app for iPhone right now on iOS, what's the likelihood that app is going to live in the same state 10 years from now? Yeah, zero. But yeah, I'd really lay money on that. <laughs> and if it is, we have a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's not so much that is it going to be the same thing later. It's is it doing the job for what you need for the lifetime of the app? And can you support it if something goes wrong? Right. That's what I look for. And I generally look at things like Stack Overflow and other places like GitHub to see how many people are using these things. Right. Yeah, the real life is in the community. Yes. And you'll see like Google and Microsoft are getting behind some of them, which is great. And to me, if I could limit it down for people, I tell them right now, I say, depending upon your preference, I point people at either Angular or the combination of Durandall with Knockout. And those two are very, very good, very solid, and they give you 95% of what you need out of the box. And not Breeze? Where does Breeze fit into this equation? So Breeze is, Breeze is a tool to me. So there's, there's frameworks and there's libraries. There's The right. framework side is, okay, I need the basic things in an app. I need to be able to navigate from page to page. I need to be able to uh, have lifecycle. I need some kind of an MV star type structure, you know, whether it's a view model or a controller or whatever. And those things come out of the box of things like Angular and Durandal. And I need data binding. That's built in, too, to both of them. But then there's the extras. For example, if you want all that rich data access, which some apps need them and some just don't. Like on your admin page, you probably didn't need Breeze when you did that for, you know, Dynet Rocks. But if you want a rich, robust line business app with a lot of data moving around, uh, that's where, like, a tool like Breeze, a library, that's a great place to add it in. And it works with both those other frameworks. Or let's go even simpler. Let's say you just want to pop up little toast messages on the page in the browser. Well, maybe you need something that's not in the framework to do that. So there's a library I wrote called Toaster, which does that for you. So these are little things, like the libraries to me are things you can pull in and it can work with any other framework. And the frameworks are ones that give you the core features out of the box. Right. It just gets you, gets you off the dime. And then after, you know, it's, it feels like to me, like after you get off the dime, you get to a certain level of sophistication and then things like Breeze come into play. Yes, you don't start with Breeze. You start with Angular or Durandal. And you don't, that, that's actually another good point is you don't mix and match frameworks. You pick one framework. Right. And then all the libraries, you can mix and match as much as your heart you know, makes you happy. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? 
Ah, it must be that happy time again. That's right, you guessed it. It's time to knock out my neighbor Sammy's spine for laying eyeballs on my wife in her spa. Oh, no. (laughs) Really? Did you just say that? Help me! Help me! I've been under a pun attack! Oh, come on, you love that. You don't, you know you loved it. I love that. All right, well. That was pure awesome. No, no. Actually, it's time to give away a DevCraft Complete Collection by Telerik to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. The DevCraft Complete Collection is everything Telerik makes in one box, including Kendo UI. And that's everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. In the complete integrated package, you'll find a jQuery-based toolset that includes rich UI widgets, a powerful data source, dynamic data visualizations, and blazing fast micro-templates, all backed by industry-leading professional support. Check out Kendo UI at kendoui.com slash .net to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 30-day trial with support. And when you're there, don't forget to thank them for supporting .net Rocks. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Shane Boyer. Oh, where are my clappers? Ah, congratulations, Shane. Hang on. I got Get my your clappers. clappers. I got my clappers. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Shane. Well done, sir. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. Every show, we give away a DevCraft Complete Collection, and every December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of stuff, technology, yet to be determined to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. Just ask Rob Corbett. He won last year. Yeah, we built him a custom PC for development of both Win8 and Connect apps. And he's been using that ever since. I have no idea what we build this year. There's so many possibilities. It's making me crazy. I think we're going to need a a teleporter or something like that. Because, you know, they're coming. (laughs) You want to set the bar high, do you? I think the next generation 3D printers. Oh, I got to tell you, I think we're going to have to do a geek out on additive uh, manufacturing, which is what 3D printers are really about. Absolutely. I found a company that is using 3D printing technology to build houses. No. Oh, my God. Houses. So they're building the walls in stages and adding the wiring and everything in them as they go. That is Whole insane. houses with additive technology. That's insane. Okay, you, you win the insane award for today. <laughs> We're going to definitely... I definitely have to do a show on that. Yep, that's in my notes for the next Geek Out. Well, we'd like to ask our guests what they would buy with $5,000 if they had to spend it on technology. John Papa, what would you get? Does it have to be a real item that I can buy today? Uh, Yeah, unfortunately it does. (laughs) Well, you know, I would like a 3D printer, but what I want to print with it would probably be something they couldn't do today. Oh, all right. What do you want to print? (laughs) Like a a guitar. I want like a really nice guitar that I can print out. Oh, man. Wow. Can you imagine? Yeah. I think that's been done, guys. I think there has been a 3D printed guitar. Oh, really? Has there really? Like an electric or an acoustic? An acoustic. Because then, you know, the materials for a lot of, well, low-end 3D printers are very brittle plastic. I mean, that that would have to be made out of metal or carbon fiber or something crazy. Yeah. Oh, no. Here it is. Cubify 3D Systems doing 3D printed guitars by Olaf Deagle. And so these are... Uh, God, semi-hollow body electric guitars using 3D printing. Wow. You have a URL for us? Uh, of course I do. So go to tinyurl.com slash 3D printed guitar. And the site is called 
Cubify, and these are routinely manufactured 3D printed electric guitars. And you do whatever you want. Wow. Oh my God. They are not cheap. 3000 bucks. Well, he could buy one. There you go. So don't, you know. There you go. We'll just get you one of these, John. I, I can work with yeah, that. And a good amp? Yeah, you can get a great amp for two grand. Holy crap, a 3D printed guitar and an amp. Get yourself a nice boogie. Yeah. It's actually pretty cool looking, too, from the picture. It's neat, isn't it? So, John, besides the memory issue, which always worries me around these spas, I got to think that that testing and debugging is really challenging because it's kind of out of the normal metaphor of the way we do testing and debugging for web pages. Yeah, well, you know, we just decided that testing and debugging was just so difficult and nobody wanted to do it anyway that in the JavaScript world, we just don't do those things. So. <laughs> That's so uh, silverlight. We always were making unmaintainable code. Now we're just embracing it. <laughs> you know, we've been fighting this thing for 10 years about being test driven. Why did just give up and just forget it? You know, <laughs> write once, read never. What a mantra. Uh, and by the way, I'm kidding. Anybody who thinks we're serious. Yeah, we are not being serious here. <laughs> no, but you know, <laughs> joke, there's joke, joke. <laughs> well, you know, the whole the whole thing of debugging them is uh, is a difficult concept right now. I do most of my debugging, in fact, pretty much all my debugging inside the browser with all these kinds of apps. I right. use the Chrome development tools uh, for all that I do. Firebug is also great with Firefox, and there's a couple nice plugins that you can get yeah. too. Yeah, I've fallen in love with Chrome's ability to debug. That seems to be the best one today. And I used to be a huge Firebug fan, but but Firefox seems to have just fallen by the wayside due to, I think, largely due to Chrome. I, I agree. I was a big Firebug fan for years, and then I switched over to using Chrome about two, two and a half years ago. And I have not looked back, uh, other than I keep checking to see how IE10 and beyond is going to do with this stuff. But you know, I, I have a lot of faith in my former employer to improve those things. But right now, it's just Chrome, hands down to me. I mean, I, it's not like I don't want to make it run in IE. It's that I want to do my development in Chrome. Yeah, and honestly, most of the pieces that I do uh, work with, they want their apps to run in IE, whether it's 8, 9, or 10. So what mo I do most of the time is I work their apps in those versions of the browsers. I need something like browserstack.com to test them, which is great. But then I go over to Chrome to actually do the debugging. And it kind of gets people flustered sometimes when I do that on these teams because they're like, well, wait, why are you testing it over here in Chrome? It's got to run IE9. And I'm like, well, it can run an IE9, but while I'm trying to figure out what's going on with this particular situation, I'm going to put it in Chrome just to figure out what's going wrong. And then I'll go back and test it in IE. Yeah, you know, I have a problem with browser stack and some of these other ones that we've been talking about in that you go to a website that you want to test out and it looks fine in the online browser. But then you go with an iPhone and it doesn't, uh, or an iPad. And isn't that because that uh, of we're using WebKit for these, uh, you know, emulators, and we can't actually get a true iOS emulator on the web? Yeah, I think that no matter which one of these tools we use, whether it be BrowserStack or Electric Mobile Studio or Responsinator.com or any of these out there, that you're going to have to run this on the real device eventually. It's just these emulators are emulating. They're not 100% accurate. In some cases, they're really poor imitations, as you've as you've mentioned. Yeah. So what is one to do? I mean, I almost think of 
having a, a service where you have an iPhone that has a little camera on it, you know, a web camera on it, and you send it uh, URLs somehow, and it goes there with the browser, and then you take a picture of it and send it to somebody, you know? It's like, is there a way to automate that? That would be pretty cool, actually. It would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want. Yeah, that's very mechanical automation. I don't want to spend 750 bucks on an iPhone. That's what I want. Oh, well. That could work. It could work. Of course it could. I think I'll go build that. All right, build it. <laughs> no, that's the biggest thing we have to figure out with a lot of these is how do you test these on multiple devices? Because that's a problem that hasn't gone away for 15 years or so. You've got all these different browsers and versions and devices and sizes, and it's a uh, it's a bit difficult to figure out how you test everywhere, and that's not an easy problem to solve. But the good news is that the other problems have gotten much better. Things like making sure that your JavaScript code doesn't have to be written twenty different ways with a bunch of if statements and switch statements to figure out how it works on multiple browsers. Remember those days? They were painful. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, I mean, you still believe in the idea that there's a one HTML model, that you can build a single page that would run on all these platforms. Yeah, I do. And, and honestly, the biggest issues I've run into have been these really little obscure things that I've tried to do. Uh, for example, there was something I was just unaware of, and I didn't do it on purpose either in a recent app that I wrote. And it's the first time I hit one of these cross-browser issues mm -hmm. in probably six months. What I had done is I had created a function and to find it inside of an if statement in JavaScript. And it didn't need it to be inside the if statement. It just happened to be where I happened to write it. Mm -hmm. Now, an if statement doesn't create scope in JavaScript, so it shouldn't have mattered, was my thought. Right. But long story short, it worked in Chrome. It worked in IE, oddly, but it broke in Firefox. And then after like an hour of me Googling and stuff, trying to figure out what was going on, turns out Firefox was doing the right thing. Firefox was following the spec, and the spec says, don't create functions inside of an if, because if you do, basically it was going to ignore them unless that if got executed. Huh. And I was like, you know, it's, I just moved the function out of the if and everything worked everywhere. But it was just a very strange, obscure thing that one browser was being a better citizen than the others. The other two were just saying, you know what, we'll let you do it and get away with it. But those kind of things, it, I mean, very honestly, I can count the number of times I've run into something like that on one hand over the last 12 to 18 months. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component1spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. So it, it has gotten better, right? The fragmentation is not as bad as it was. Oh, it's considerably better. The, the places that it's bad, honestly, to me, is the CSS. CSS3 is amazing, but the way that the browsers all implement it gets really convoluted. And without tools that help you write all the vendor-specific extensions for CSS, it, it really can be quite a nightmare. Aren't vendor-specific extensions just a plague? Like, why are we doing this? 
Yeah, it's it's really a love-hate thing there, too, because the reason they exist is so we can take advantage of these features and hopefully be forward compatible when these things actually become adopted in the browser. But it really clutters up your CSS, I mean, tremendously. I mean, I've seen some of my CSS going from like two lines of code with vendor extensions end up being something like eight or nine lines of code. And mm. you really right. multiply that across the file that ends up being quite a bit and it's hard to maintain. Yeah, I, don't, I, I just, everything about those vendor extensions and I've been using web timings since early on and they're all vendor specific and they're evil. There's no two ways about it. Like you just, you have to write code that makes you sad to tolerate yes. this. Yeah. And you know, there's cool stuff like uh, Mads Christensen of Microsoft has that really great plugin called Web Essentials for Visual Studio. And it is fantastic mm -hmm. because it automatically would tell you, look, you forgot to include a vendor extension. How would I add it for you? And I'll give you the proper syntax. And his tool keeps up to date with all the different extensions and what they're supposed to be as they evolve, which is fantastic. Because how are you supposed to keep up with that stuff? You just can't. Yeah. But that's still a stopgap, in my opinion. The good news is that's CSS, and that's more the styling side, which I think there's a lot more room for improvement still. But the JavaScript side of the world has gotten much, much easier. And it's really infrequent that I run across a big problem like I did, I, I just mentioned a minute ago. So you have faith this is going to work going forward, huh? I do. I do. It's pretty amazing what you can do with sure. the JavaScript language. John, what's your wish list? Is it, does, and let's just pick an area. Is it tooling? Do you wish you had better, like, integrated tools for, for developing spas? I, I really wish I did. Yeah, it's the tooling side that is my biggest wish. And a very close second is the whole layout piece of it. Because there's times I still struggle with how do I make this look the way I want it to look and respond and be responsive the way I want it to do. Uh, but the tooling side, I mean, right now, the number of tools that I use, and people comment this on my courses on Pluralsight, they're like, it's like a barrage of tools that you use to get this done. And it is. It truly is. And the funny thing is, I don't use Visual Studio nearly as much for the debugging and the layout as I used to. In this JavaScript and HTML world, I use Visual Studio to write the code and all the great refactoring and coding features of it, and the IntelliSense and all that great stuff. But then once I run it, I actually go over to Chrome and I do all the other stuff there. And then yep. I've got a bunch of plugins and things that I use, and it's it's very disjointed. It would be great if I could do all this stuff in one place, or even I'd pick five places that I could do it. But right now, my tool set is like this big, massive box. Do you think Microsoft is going to uh, try to stuff some of that into Visual Studio even more than they have? Let me rephrase your, your comment, and because I, I think what they're going to try to do is Microsoft is going to try to solve the problem. I don't necessarily think that the problem is completely solved just with Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. I think some of these things can be solved by tying Visual Studio to IE better and improving the IE experience. There are some debugging features which are just purely better in the browser, yep. hands down. Mm -hmm. And by moving those over to Visual Studio, I think it's a heavy weight. Yep. For example, when I crank up Visual Studio, I don't want to wait 10 seconds for my app to start debugging. And 10 seconds sounds long, but you're doing this 300 times in a day. That's a lot of time. Sure. If I can just crank it up in the browser and then have Visual Studio talk to the browser, whichever one they, they can talk to, that would be fantastic. Hmm. So I, I have no idea what they're working on or where they're going, but I've given them a lot of feedback on this story has to change because I myself, as a Microsoft big fanboy, have been moving more and more from my time for Visual Studio over to the Chrome browser. Hey, between that do. and my uh, screenshot uh, iPad, iPhone app, I think we've got something here. Yeah, it's. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, man. You never know. 
Guess what I figured out by listening to .NET Rocks. Yeah. Go do it, people. Don't wait for us to do it. So what's next for you? I know you're doing a lot of Pluralsight courses, and uh, do you have some stuff you want to plug? Yeah, lots going on these days. Uh, One of those guys who can't seem to stop doing things. But lately, I've actually taken a little break from some of the technology in the spa world, and I just put out a course uh, a couple weeks ago on presenting and public speaking up on Pluralsight, which uh, has done pretty well so far. And then I'll be working again on a couple courses soon for both Angular and Knockout, and then a JavaScript course for... Angular brackets, you mean? Oh, Angular and Knockout, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, the libraries. So I'll be doing these courses uh, for Pluralsight, and and then I'll probably take a little bit of a break and do the conference... uh, conference tour again in this fall have you been uh as your as your consulting been in high demand since uh since you, you became mr spa mr spa <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a star trek character doesn't it mr spa <laughs> spa spa live long and code yeah but uh no, but you yeah, seriously you questions. are yeah i get a lot of i get a lot of uh, requests i don't i'm not sure how many of them are serious because quite frankly i'm so busy i turn a lot of them down but um, there's there's a lot of demand for spa and JavaScript right now. There's a lot of companies shifting there, and I definitely get a lot of correspondence, probably more than I've ever had, quite frankly. Wow, that's and that cool. includes the days of you know XAML really picking up. I, I get a ton of this stuff. And are you an independent guy now? I am. I am independent, and which is cool because I get to do uh, what I want to do. It's fun. So when you wake up in the morning, you basically, you know, how do I make this spa experience better? Yeah, I get to spend my days helping other developers make their apps, which to me is really rewarding. And it's, that's the fun part for me. Okay. Um, favorite tools that we haven't discussed yet? Because it's all about the tools. And the tool list is long already. Yeah, I think one of my new favorite tools has got to be the Glimpse tool which yeah. is at uh, getglimpse.org or .com, something mm. like that. Uh, those guys have created a great set of tools, which really help you peek into what's going on on the server, and they're starting to get more interested in the client side, which is something I'm really interested in. Yeah, we, we did a show with them just recently, and uh, those who were introduced to Glimpse through our show just can't believe how awesome it is. Yeah, and there's two others I'll throw out there, which I think are pretty cool. And these are plugins for the Chrome browser. One of them is a Knockout JS uh, plugin for the Chrome browser, which helps you see all of your bindings right inside the developer tools. And another one, if you don't like Knockout and Durandal, which that would work really great for, if you like Angular, there's an Angular plugin for the Chrome browser too, mm. which will help you see that information. So if you're using either of those libraries, I absolutely recommend getting one of those plugins. They're free. They're up in the Chrome Web Store. Do you think it's actually could be lucrative jumping into that tools market for JavaScript? A lot of them seem to be, you know, free. And uh, the ones that aren't free generally aren't all that popular. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think there's opportunity there, but it's not like this big greenfield area where you're yeah. going to be the first one to create the calculator app on the iPhone and you're going to make a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, for example, um, I know the guys at Breeze very well. Ward Bell's a good friend of mine. And we often tease each other very lightheartedly that, my library, Toaster.js, which I wrote, has got all these downloads out there, and that it's doing really well for downloads. But then he teases me back and says, well, how much money is that put in your pocket? Um, yeah. It's free. It's MIT licensed, so I've got nothing from it. Right. You know, and those guys make a really great library, you know, and they're, they're, they're 
giving it away for free, but selling support is their model. And right. I look at, you know, the Telerix, the Ken, you know, Kendo UI. I look at Widgmo and Dev Express and Infragistics mm-hmm. and, and the Breeze guys. And I, you know, I'd really be interested to see in a show with them to talk about how that's working out for them all. Because I'll bet you they're, uh, you know, they're figuring out things as they go because this is a different world. Yeah, trying to turn this whole uh, open source library into a business, I think it's very challenging. Yeah, well, there's so much money to be made in actually developing websites. You know, that's really where the money is. Let's not say it any other way. You know, it's funny because companies look at these open source libraries and in one sense, they're like, well, why should I pay for something if it's already free? Yep. For example, Kendo. You can use Kendo under certain license restrictions for free. And I'm reading this off their website. That's the way I read it. Not for commercial use, et cetera, mm. but you could just go use it. But what happens if you can't figure out how something works? That's when they want you to pay for things like support or licensing models. And that's very difficult. I know for a fact that people don't like to pay for training or support on products that are free. They right. F- they feel like it's extortion. They do. And, and the funny thing is that if they want, but the next question always is, well, how long is this thing going to live and be supported? Right. Well, if you pay them, it'll be longer than if you don't. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a correlation here. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. like uh, Kendo's in this for the for the love of it. They're they're you know just picking on them because they're a great library. They're building this because people want this. There's a demand right. for it, right? And then they can get support for it. Yep. And Telerik does have amazing support. I've um, I've experienced it myself, you know, for people who don't know anything about .NET Rocks or Carl Franklin or anything. Um, they, they just always get you on the phone with somebody who knows what they're talking about. Yeah, I've been very impressed with them uh, in the web space with them and then with uh, Breeze, the guys at IdeaBlade. Yeah. The support that both of them have given to me has, has been tremendous. Uh, and the Widgmo guys from Component One have been really, really responsive as well mm. uh, lately. It's good stuff. All right, John, it's good to talk to you. And, uh, uh, again, your Pluralsight course on SPA was really, really amazing. I, I enjoyed it, and I learned so much about so many technologies and how to put them together. I highly recommend it. Thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.